Alright all you movie junkies, it is time for the SLS Cast, with your hosts Matt and Tim. And welcome one and all to episode 80 of the SLS Cast. Yes ladies and gentlemen, it's the miracle episode of the SLS Cast. And you're wondering to yourself, well, isn't every episode a miracle that you two are able to do this show? And yes, that is true, but that is not the miracle in question. The miracle is, of course, the miracle on ice from the 1980 Winter Olympics when the underdog United States men's ice hockey team, just a group of ragtag collegiate players, defeated the mighty Soviet team. For the gold medal. On which the movie Miracle is actually based. And I can tell by Tim's <laughs> stunned silence. I'm in that awe. you too are just awed by this information. And with that awe-inspiring information, I, of course, am Matt. It was so amazing. You, you tied it in with a, Kirk, with a Mike Kirk Douglas movie. The Mike Kirk, Mike Kirk Douglas. It's one of those, right? Maybe we should do the SLS cast on did ice. I say Douglas? I meant Kurt Russell. Kurt, did I say Kurt Douglas? Did I say I Kurt, Kurt Douglas? Russell. I meant Kurt Russell. I, yeah. <laughs> uh, poor Kurt Russell. And Kurt Douglas. Maybe. Apparently. I don't know. Yeah. Could be cool for him. So, do you ice skate? <laughs> Since we're on the topic of ice skating. Actually, I, I can ice skate. I don't normally because you know who 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 wants who who wants to see this on ice, right? I just, just oh, you know. a, a few people maybe. <laughs> no, I mean I can. I yeah. don't generally get an, uh, that much of an opportunity. Uh, I have some friends who work for a company that I used to work for back when I worked with Cirque du Soleil, and they the company does the ice rink in the woodlands every year the outdoor ice rink that happens there at christmas time yeah and so because of that uh, i get free passes every year so i go at least once i end up going at least once every year so can you do like the turns and the flips and the the stunts no no i can go around in a circle just like everybody else though do you wear the spandex outfit seriously tim with the ruffles there's no reason to subject anybody to that (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> just none none seriously oh well i tried even with the lost weight and everything still no still none but yeah what about you do you like to ice skate not you know i uh, i mean i could totally see you in blaze of glory well do people enjoy falling because <laughs> i would do that a lot if i were to ice skate i'm not a- what about regular roller skating or roller blading same thing applies the same falling really? ratio happens with uh, with rollerblading then. So, okay, funny story about Tim rollerblading. Whenever <laughs> I was a kid, there was the Champions Roller World. I think it was Champions Roller World. Not uh, okay. too... It actually wasn't too far away from you. Uh, where, where I know where you live. It was very popular when we were kids to have your birthday parties at roller rinks. I don't really know if that's still a popular thing or not. I was eight years old. Well, I, it was probably my seven-year-old, seven-year birthday. It really is. 
it really is what my seven year birthday. It's still popular? No, still popular. Oh really? My, my daughter goes. My, my daughters go to at least three a year. Really? Yes. Are they like they get we, the same place between or? the ages of like six and nine or so? It's still the cool thing to do. Oh, that's good. Yeah. Wow, fate in humanity has been restored by <laughs> hearing that bit of information. So it was my birthday, like my seven seven year old seven year birthday or whatever. What you, they usually do is. In the middle of the afternoon, they say, okay, everybody get off the roller skating rink. We're going to announce people's birthdays. And at Champions Roller World, their little mascot were these, or are these like panda bears. You have the big mama panda bear, then you have the young baby panda bear. You know, they're dudes or chicks dressed in outfits, but they're rollerblading at the same time. And they call out your name if it's your birthday, and what you do is. In, well, in my case, I was on the opposite end of the roller skating rink. You're supposed to get on the on the rink and roller skate to get a t-shirt and a picture slash a little hug from the panda bears. Well, what you're supposed to do is rollerblade to them and stop and do all this fun stuff. I did, now, even now, I still don't know how to stop. Well, then I especially didn't know how to stop. And I ran right into that baby panda bear, causing it to fly up, and it was, it landed right on top of me. So I was panned down, or panned. <laughs> you were panned? I was, yeah, I was panned <laughs> down. Nice. I was nice. pinned down by a baby panda bear, and then the baby panda bear tripped the mama panda bear, and so then I was pinned down by both the mama panda bear and the baby panda bear. It looked like I was getting gang raped by panda bears. I was gonna ask: Are, are, are you? Uh, do, do you have like a, a, a an unnatural fear of pandas today, or perhaps maybe a furry fetish involving pandas? No, I actually I have definitely more of a acceptance towards panda bears now, <laughs> since I put them through so much grief <laughs> when I was seven nice. years old. There's a video of it somewhere. I need to dig that up. I would I would like to see that. That would be pretty cool. So, did you, have, did you have anything fun or exciting happen to you over the last week? Since this past weekend was Father's Day, I guess you didn't... Did, did you remember to call your dad on Sunday? I did. Uh, that and a little text message. Text messaging, unfortunately, has become the best way to get a hold of my dad, who seems to be golfing all the freaking time. Right on. Oh, and thank you, by the way, for your text message to me. Oh, you're welcome. Well, you are a father, yeah. and I do talk to you every week, so I figured... That w- yes, it is the nice thing. You know, I thought I was going to be clever, though. I texted back to him. He sends, you know, Happy Father's Day, Matt. And I text him back, and I say, Thanks, dude. Same to you. And then, wait a minute, just to see if there's going to be a response. And there was no response, so I just went ahead and said, LOL, just kidding, and all that kind of crap. And then, like, the next day, I get a, ha, 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 thanks. And, yeah. <laughs> it was really so the was next like day? yesterday, I guess, because today's the 17th. Yeah. So we're, we're on Tuesday the 17th. I'm trying to work that into the show a little bit more so people have an idea of when we record. I noticed that, uh, you know, some other, most of the other podcasts will tell you the date upon which it was entered into oblivion. But yeah, so I had fun on Father's Day, though. Did you wake up to, like, a Father's Day breakfast in bed, or...? I would have liked some sex in bed. 
but you know that's 10 years ago 10 years away no i'm just kidding <laughs> dude is there like a contract involved or <laughs> no 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 actually i i am i am exceptionally i i believe that my marriage is one of those few fortunate marriages that even at 10 years later uh, after being married, we've been together for 13 years now, and uh, 10 years into the marriage, three kids into the marriage, and there is still a sex life. Yes, yes. I am not one. Of, it's like I feel like I see. I watch shows, or I watched since it's not on anymore. Shows like uh, Everybody Loves Raymond, and mm-hmm. it's always like the poor dad never gets any sex from the wife and all that kind of stuff or whatever. And I'm like, I sincerely thank God that I do not have that problem. I, you know, so yeah, thanks, wife. I'm sure you're going to be really happy if you ever listen to this show that we're <laughs> discussing this kind of stuff. To the does anybody in her family listen to the show? Because if they do, they are now going to be permanently scarred by hearing about. <laughs> uh, well, again, her her dad listens uh, occasionally, and I think. Um, my brother-in-law is now listening. I actually have some cousins and stuff, though, on my side who listen to the show in Minnesota. They, they live out in Minnesota. And every time they, we, we all meet up at the family reunion in November. And so they're always telling me about it. So this ought to be fun. Because my cousin, my cousins who listen to the show now have kids. And like last year... They're his oldest son is my cousin Jason's oldest son is like 15 now I think he's actually going to be 16 this year and so he was asking me well you know I mean I like listening to the show and everything and I don't listen to it all the time he, he was like but do you, do you think uh, you know my, my kids go to listen I was like nah I don't know I don't know I mean I personally wouldn't care <laughs> but you know impressionable ears and yeah. all that kind of stuff and so, Ooh, it's too yeah. risque for those Minnesota folk. Well, I don't know those Minnesota folk. Remember, they're from Texas first. He he moved to Minnesota for a job. So uh, well, Minnesota taints the mind, no matter where you come from. <laughs> right, and so going like way back since we've kind of somehow drifted off into tangent land. It was a regular Sunday morning. I woke up, and except I was uh, forbidden from going into the kitchen, and it turns out the girls were making homemade. From scratch, blueberry muffins for me for breakfast. And they were awesome, by the way, sincerely. Like, this wasn't just one of those, oh, that's sweet, and then you just kind of feed it to the dog kind of thing. No, <laughs> it was, like, really, really good. Oh, good. Um, you didn't find any, then, like, toys or slobber no, no, baked I, I, in the muffins? I got some cool stuff, though. I got uh, my favorite candies. Uh, so I got some, like, some non-parels. I'm a big non-parel fan. And Reese's Pieces. And then I also got uh, the entire Indiana Jones collection on Blu-ray. And uh, the 25th or 30th anniversary, I can't remember which one it is now, uh, Blu-ray collection for Back to the Future. Oh, okay. That's like the ultimate Father's Day gift right there. I thought so. I was definitely impressed. Successful Father's Day. Ka-ching, ka-ching. (laughs) Ka-ching. Sounds so (laughs) sad. Like, you just regretted saying every happy thing that happened to you on Father's Day. Indeed. Indeed. All right, so... It was great until it wasn't. Yeah. (laughs) It was great, and then it stopped. And that was when the massacre began. (laughs) 
Anyway. <laughs> Happy Father's Day, Daddy. Almost like the remake of Old Boy. Oh, Daddy, I'm so happy to see you. Blam! With the shotgun to the head. <laughs> oh, God. All right, now let's move on to another different train wreck. Do we want to go ahead and do the news? Sure. All right. Here we go, folks. It's the news! <laughs> Um, shall we get the depressing stuff out of the way first for the news? Oh, yeah. Talk about the All deaths, right. right? Yes. Uh, I have two and you have one. I can s- just start off with mine since I have one. All right, so for the first passing of the evening would be the 91-year-old Ruby D. She was an actress, poet, playwright, and... A woman that you would definitely recognize if you look at her picture. Maybe not her name, but you would definitely recognize her. Lately, and most noticeably, you might remember her from American Gangster. She played Denzel's mom in it. Uh, She was nominated for an Academy Award for that movie. Uh, What it says here on thehollywoodreporter.com in an article written by Dwayne Burge and Eric Hayden, they say that... D won an Obie Award in 1971 for her portrayal of Lena in Athol Fugard's Boseman and Lena in 1970, and a Drama Desk Award for Wedding Band in 1974. She was nominated for an Academy Award for her role in Ridley Scott's 2007 drama American Gangster. She had an impressive stage career, including a highly praised performance in Pearly Victorious in 1963. Also on stage, Dee was notable for the proud working mother, Ruth, in A Raisin in the Sun from 1961. In 1988, she starred with Denzel Washington and Paul Winfield in Checkmates on Broadway and was inducted into the Theater Hall of Fame. Again, another fantastic actress. I, I will say that I had no idea that she was already 91 years old. If you, They have a picture of her, a very recent picture of her, and she looks great. Would not have guessed, so Ruby D passed away. Absolutely. And her and her husband, uh, Ossie Davis, were also very influential in the civil rights movement, which was pretty darn cool. Definitely sad to hear that. And also, another legend in her own right, actress Carla Lamel, or I guess Lamel would be the better way to say it, uh, passed, uh, passed away. And she was 104 which is just out amazing for starters, holy crap, because they have pictures from here when she's 102, about to celebrate her 103rd birthday, and she looks fantastic. I mean, good God, you would not, you would not believe this woman was over 100 years old. But not only is, was she someone who aged remarkably gracefully, this is a woman who was a dancer and an actress, and check this out, now her uncle... Carl Lamel founded Universal Studios. And she was literally one of the last links to Hollywood's silent film era. 
she was born in Chicago on October 20th, 1909, and she moved to Los Angeles in the early 1920s when her uncle invited his brother Joseph and his family to live in a bungalow on the movie lot. She became a ballet dancer and an actress and appeared in The Phantom of the Opera from 1925 and in Dracula. And I actually happen to have that silent film, 1925 version of Phantom of the Opera, on DVD. For the 1931 classic, she spoke the film's first lines. You know, the, among the rugged peaks that frown down upon the Borgo Pass, blah, 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 all that stuff. Yeah. So she she was actually there, so you'll always remember her for uh, horror movie fans will always be able to remember her and she was literally a very wonderful person by all accounts and it's just kind of sad that we have lost yet another link to that bygone era of hollywood so that that is definitely sad and this article that i got this from uh came from the latimes.com and it was courtesy of claire nolan next up and the last passing is someone that more people have definitely heard of, and this is from music.yahoo.com, courtesy of Craig Rosen. Radio legend Casey Kasem, dead at 82. Now, this is a movie podcast, and so, yet he was very influential in the movies because of his effect on pop culture via radio, which then influenced movie soundtracks. So we have that connection. And, if nothing else, I mean, he did actually... uh, star in a couple of movies as cameo appearances um, and was the voice of Shaggy he was the original voice of Shaggy from Scooby-Doo he actually passed away from Parkinson's and dementia unfortunately he was 82 years old and uh, of course people will remember him as the host of the American Top 40 and that was the countdown show that he co-founded in 1970 basically hosted it off and on well he hosted it from 1970 through 1989 and then ended up coming back to the eight to, to the America's top nine uh america's top 40 uh in 1998 and came back through uh through 2004 which was really cool and just kind of sad that we're losing all these really amazing people that i grew up with and i know even to a to a lesser extent, but still to a very influential extent that Tim grew up with. And I don't want to lose them anymore. People need to stay alive forever. So, Matt, I think the time has come. I would never have thought this would ever happen, especially anytime soon, because I, I think DVDs are still relevant today. But it looks like, according to a Price Waterhouse Cooper study, that the sale of streaming video titles will exceed the sale of physical DVDs, and that'll happen as soon as 2016. Wow. So that's only two years away. Two years away when DVDs will slowly go away. And, I mean, every so often you'll come across a blank VHS. But, man, I mean... It's just crazy. Uh, this article here, the cinemablend.com article entitled DVD Going the Way of VHS in 2016 by Christy Puchko. She Puchkoed again this episode. And I like the first Puchko! line here. <laughs> no, I'm sorry. I was confusing that with Kuzco from the intro of uh, The Emperor's New Groove. My bad. Oh, I thought you were just working in the uh, World Cup 
in there somehow. <laughs> no, there's a, yeah, the, oh, like like at the uh, either at the beginning of Emperor's New Groove or the end of Emperor's New Groove, they're singing about him, and then they end up. Uh, Tom Jones is singing. I think it's at the beginning, uh, and Tom Jones is singing about him, and they do this big whole number where it's all about Emperor Cusco. And but we could definitely replace that with Poochco because that would just be awesome. Actually, that would be pretty funny. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, I'm sorry. Carry on, sir. Carry on. But what they say here is uh, they start their article with prepare yourselves to explain what the cloud. The Cloud is to all of your elderly family members because DVDs are going the way of the dinosaurs. I'm not even familiar with The Cloud. To me, it's like The Matrix. It's crazy. It's new. It's mysterious. And they go on to say that DVD sales saw a 28% drop last year, making $12.2 billion. This total only is expected to reach $8.7 billion by 2018, a time at which electronic home video streaming titles or digital downloads are anticipated to be the highest earning element of filmmaking within five years. Digital video profits are expected to leap from 2014's projected 8.5 total to $17 billion. Basically, PWC projects that by 2018, PWC's Price Waterhouse Cooper projects that by 2018, digital video will be earning distributors more profits than movie theatrical box office will. However, Price Waterhouse Cooper isn't calling theatrical releases obsolete. Not just yet, anyway. Despite some doomsayers insisting that the rise of digital video is luring people away from the movie theaters, PricewaterhouseCoopers study declares that ticket sales will climb 15.9% over the next half decade. But that will be in part because of ticket prices rising. By their estimate, the cost of a movie ticket will rise from an average of $8.89 to $9.81 by 2018. Notably, both distribution to China and 3D releases were meant as ways to bolster box office performance, but both are being met with challenges. I'll just end all quotes there. So, that's a little sad in a way, because not only will... uh, I think the the DVD sales diminishing will also affect Blu-ray sales, and therefore we're not going to get those cool... You know, at least not as many of those cool... Blu-ray DVD bonus features and documentaries and commentaries and all that stuff. And especially with a lot of the more popular movies, all that crap is going away. So what do you what do you think, Matt? Do you have any comments or worries? If you notice, it's only comparing it directly to DVDs. Well, right. Yeah. And the thing is that the people people are into cloud storage now, and that's and that's all well and good. But the problem is cloud storage requires constant access to it in order for it to be viable. And there are still too many areas, times, and places where you will not have that direct constant access to cloud storage. Not to mention the size of a file to get it to be in full HD. At some point, it has to become decompressed so that you can stream it. And while storage can be compressed and things of that nature, to actually undo it, they're just way too big. And so you're not getting full high definition 99% of the time when you're getting these streamable things. They do have them. 
they, they do have them available where you can buy them online and it is high def but most of the people are just buying the regular streaming versions and even when they do get high def it's usually 720p and not 1080p and now that we're getting into the 4k resolution televisions and stuff like that the media of storage is still behind the medium of technology so i don't so while it definitely doesn't bode well for dvds blu-rays are going to be okay for now because that's still the best way to get that and the way that they have been able to interactively put the blu-ray technology so that it's interactive within the movie for your special features and your bonus features and things that nature i don't think we have to worry about that kind of stuff just yet but dvds aren't even high def so sad to see a technology go the way of the dodo but we're getting we're getting high def now so yeah true yeah i'm just i i I need that physical copy one day i plan off going off the grid and therefore, no cloud storage. <laughs> nice. <laughs> I'm going oh, off the grid with movies, man. It's going to happen. I hear you. I hear you. All right. Well, let's see here. I have got a couple of movie updates here for you. And uh, this will be interesting. I would definitely like to know what you think of this first one. I've got, I've got a trio of movie updates. First one is from Yahoo.com. And it appears that this is a link from Variety, and it's courtesy of Dave McNary. It says, Jupiter Ascending delayed until February 2015. Yes, Warner Brothers has delayed the Andy and Lana Wachowski movie Jupiter Ascending from July 18 to February 6th, 2015. Studio did not give a reason for pulling the sci-fi from the summer schedule a uh, a mere weeks before its opening. Channing Tatum, Mila Kunis, Eddie Redmayne, Douglas Booth, and Sean Bean are starring, which means poor Sean Bean's probably going to die. The Wachowskis produced and directed from their own script. Um, yeah, what do you think of the... Good Lord, what is? what do you think of this news? I read somewhere that it was because of Edge of Tomorrow was one of the reasons why they, they decided to push it back. I don't know if it's because they're similar in some way, and I'm pretty sure it's not, because Jupiter Ascending is more of a action-fantasy drama movie, whereas right. Edge of Tomorrow is mainly a war-action Yeah, kind of like Star- Starship Troopers meets Groundhog Day. Right, yeah, yeah, pretty much. So, I, I, I don't know, this, I mean, it's kind of like uh, with Martin Scorsese's Shutter Island. It was supposed to be released... Uh, at one time, and then they push it back until like a February or March release or whatever. It's supposed to come out the October before, and they push it back. A lot of it is because of award season. They probably thought that, oh, hey, well, you know, there's not going to be much competition for the next year. So it could be a strategic move made by Warner Brothers. So, I, yeah, I don't, it just seems to me that. When they do this for this kind of a movie, and the movie looks visually like the trailers, the, the, the two trailers that I saw for it, very, very visually appealing, visually astounding. But the story just didn't seem to do anything for me, and I'm wondering if it's because it's just not that strong of a movie. And so that's why they're pushing it. I don't know. Uh, but yeah, so that's kind of an interesting little thing there. Uh, next 
for Star Wars updates coming to Star or I'm sorry for movie updates StarWars.com Josh Trank to direct standalone Star Wars film in addition to the episodes of a new Star Wars trilogy, Lucasfilm and Disney continued development of multiple standalone movies that will offer new stories beyond the core saga. The newest director to come on board is Josh Trank. Quote, we're thrilled to welcome Josh into the family, end quote, says Lucasfilm President Kathleen Kennedy. Quote, he is such an incredible talent and has a great imagination and sense of innovation that makes him perfectly suited to Star Wars and for this new slate of movies that reach beyond the core characters and storylines of episodes one through nine. End quotes. So how about that, huh? Yeah, it really is really neat. I, I mean, if it's now, good. Now remember, for those of you who don't, who aren't familiar, this is the guy who directed Chronicle, which was the um, the one where the superhero, where people develop the, kid, these kids to find out that they have uh, superhero powers, and three of them think it's really good. It's four of them. Three of them are like, "How oh, wow, this is awesome!" And then the fourth one becomes a villain. It was a pretty cool movie. I liked how. Yeah. I mean, it was definitely one of the better found footage movies. Absolutely. I, I, so I'm I'm definitely really cool. I, I really like how it's this is just once again proof positive that holy crap, the most genius thing that George Lucas has done since creating Star Wars and founding ILM was selling to Disney. That was you know so um, just absolutely. And of course he is working on Fantastic Four currently for 20th Century Fox. Last up for me from the movie update news. Apparently, now this is a loose report, but still it's a report nonetheless from BadassDigest.com, courtesy of Devin Faris, uh, Farasi, I guess. Sorry if I butchered your name there, I apologize. Turns out that Fox may want Brian Singer off X-Men Apocalypse. The issue is, of course, the impending court case against him with the whole rape and all that kind of crap. The thing is that's really weird, though, is that the article discusses that the studio is just basically any form or fashion of bad publicity in this magnitude, in the order of this magnitude, is just verboten, and they don't want anything to do with it. And yet, even though it seems that Singer has had his lawyers contact the studio and show them, look, this is our defense, this is what we have, and it's a good defense. They're, like, they're going to show that, look, Brian Singer is not guilty of anything, check this out, here's what's up. But there are because of all this, they don't even want him on Apocalypse, which is just kind of weird. Look, I, I realize, again, I'm the only one who hated X-Men Days of Future Past. I, I accept that. That's fine. I can be the, the only one. But this is fucking stupid. I mean, the movie isn't even in filming yet. How about we let them get past all this and, and then maybe make a decision, uh, you know? I don't know. I just think this is totally retarded. I'm hoping that this is just... Terrible loose gossip, but yeah, just terrible, 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 terrible. It's probably that one executive that has an issue with it. That one executive who, unfortunately, you know, has he's the Lou Wasserman of executives. <laughs> there you go. Alrighty, okay. So Francis Ford Coppola made entertainment mo- entertainment news, entertainment news past couple weeks. Article written by Gabe Toro, <laughs> entitled Hollywood Might Start Making Live Movies, which is kind of a, a, a ridiculous concept. 
What they say here, every year voices proclaim that movies are dying, and every year another filmmaker answers this with a new idea or innovation that can change our cinematic landscape. And sometimes, they're just bonkers! It sounds very much like you could classify Francis Ford Coppola's statements as just that. Are you ready for live cinema? They ask. Speaking at the Producers Guild, produced by Conference via Deadline, Coppola spoke of same-time worldwide streaming being granted to movies as they shoot Coppola Explains This. I probably should have added a pause there. It sounded ridiculous. Movies as they shoot? Coppola Explains. Quote, Movies no longer have to be set in stone and can be composed and interpreted for different audiences that come to see it. Film has always been a recorded medium. You can do anything, and you can do it live. End Coppola's quote. Coppola claims that these live cinema remixes could be 30% pre-recorded to distinguish itself from theater. Some might recall that Coppola tried a similar technique with Twixt, his last movie touring the film and remixing scenes differently for each audience, along with musical accompaniment. The Man is 72, And while Spielberg and Lucas claim that the industry is dead because they can't get funding for their latest movies, here's Francis Ford Coppola bravely, bizarrely experimenting in a way that changes what we know about filmed entertainment. End quotes. And the article goes on to ask, could this catch on? And I I really don't think so because I don't think a a number of people don't want to put the effort into doing a live medium, I mean, because you would need a number of people to want to do this, and yeah, I just don't see it catching on. That, and to me, I I think it's kind of a cop-out saying that the only way to revitalize movies is to create a unique experience for every audience. Whatever happened to making a movie that, if it's good enough or good for a mass audience, everybody will enjoy it? I I don't don't know, just the, the reasoning there does seem a little bonkers to me. I mean, I don't want to say bonkers, because that might mean he's crazy, but it just, it just doesn't, it just seems a little weird. And I'm a firm believer that you make a good movie, it's a good movie. You don't have to change it or tweak it for an audience. Uh, it might also say something that Coppola's, his last few movies, were not received too positive, positively, especially uh, the movie Twixt that they reference in this article. What do you think, Matt? Do you think uh, live movies are the way of the future or not? Well, I was I was literally about to jump in uh, right before you said I was like live movie. So does he mean theater? And then you were like, well, and then thirty percent pre-recorded to distinguish it from theater. So now I'm just like, so it's performance theater? Yeah, which is which is like worse than regular theater. I um, I think his heart's in the right place, but I I, I am. I agree with you. I just don't see this thing taking off. I appreciate that he's trying to innovate. It's kind of like powered flight. You see all the old movies where people had like these ridiculous contraptions for trying to figure out how to fly before the Wright brothers nailed it and everything. Mm-hmm. And I think that's kind of like what this is just in reverse, where we have an established medium. We can see it evolving to... Um, to two kind of divergent areas where the movie theaters are all about blockbusters and sequels and big budget things. And 
the other passion projects and uh, things like th- that Spielberg was talking about with like Lincoln was going to be on HBO, before, but because he put his name and his and uh, in, in, in his influence behind it, it was turned into a feature. And you'll see all that stuff start to go to places like HBO and AMC. You'll see more of that stuff go on cable. You're seeing that divergent stuff happening now. And here he is still trying to, you know, make the weird circular bouncing contraption and the big 25 flapping wing things that will fly but that don't fly. I just, yeah, I'm with you on that. That's weird. Weird. So, yeah. Oh, and speaking of weird news, here's some weird news for you. From Deadline.com, courtesy of Mike Fleming Jr., Tom Hiddleston to play country icon Hank Williams and will sing as well. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, the Avengers star Tom Hiddleston will play country and western legend Hank Williams in I Saw the Light, a film that Mark Abraham will direct and which has come together as a co-production between Rat Pack Entertainment, Bronze Studios, and Creative Wealth Media France, all of which will fund the film. Abraham wrote the script based on the Colin Escott biography of Williams and Aaron L. Gilbert, I'm sorry, Aaron L. Gilbert will produce with Brett Ratner, G. Mark Roselle, and Abraham. Ratner's partners, James Packer, will be executive producer. Now they're saying the production is going to begin in Louisiana in October, and Hiddleston will sing such Williams standards as Your Cheatin' Heart, I'm So Lonesome, I Could Cry, and Hey Good Lookin'. I just do not see how this... I... Yeah... This will be like the acting job of the century if he can pull this off. Yeah, be ready for all the you know people making fun of. Hey, Loki. you know what? He might be able to do it. Yeah, I believe you. Yeah, I, I agree. I see. I, I, and I think it's all the stuff. It's kind of like the Jennifer Lawrence thing when she was originally cast in the Hunger Games. People are like, "Who? What? Why? What?" And and then of course she did a great job. And then I think that's what people are looking at here. Like seriously, I mean, I don't know. It does. I just cannot seem to wrap my mind around it, but I'm at least willing to give it a chance. From comicbookmovie.com, and this is courtesy of Storm Logan Summers, X-Men Apocalypse to take place in 1983. On the Q&A with Jeff Goldsmith, screenwriter and producer Simon Kinberg tells Goldsmith that the next installment to the X-Men film series will take place in 1983. Being in 1983... For those who want to do the math, basically 10 years after Days of Future Past. So that'll be kind of interesting to see how it goes. Well, you know, I, I for one, am just going to personally love the uh, ideas of the technology that are popping in there. So, cool. And then last but not least is a very simple little thing from ComingSoon.net. Harrison Ford to miss eight weeks of filming following injury on Star Wars set. This is uh, They're sourcing the Hollywood Reporter on this. It was revealed that actor Harrison Ford had sustained an injury on the set of Star Wars Episode 7, and now The Hollywood Reporter brings word that Ford has suffered a broken ankle and will miss up to eight weeks of filming on the highly anticipated sequel. The site also reports that Ford's injury will not change the film's release date. And that is a very good thing. With that being said, then, I believe it is time for... Discussions with Matt and Tim. 
This week on Discussions with Matt and Tim, we discuss the controversy over Eva Green's poster featured in Frank Miller's Sin City, A Dame to Kill For. And now, Discussions with Matt and Tim. All right. So here we are, yes, Discussions. Wait, wait, wait. So basically the deal is here. Uh, last week, actually it's been a couple of weeks now, there was a new poster for Frank Miller's Sin City, A Dame to Kill For. It made its way online, um, and it was supposed to be a character poster like they have for all the other characters in the new movie. Unfortunately, this particular one had been banned by the MPAA. It was featuring Eva Green as the salacious Eva Lord. The poster was rejected for, uh, was rejected, quote, for nudity, curve under breast, and dark nipple areola circle visible through sheer gown, end quote. And, uh, actually, it turns out that Green has replied to this. She actually said, quote, I'm, uh, and she told this to Vanity Fair. Quote, I am not actually naked on the poster. I find it a bit odd. It seems like it's all just publicity. A lot of noise for nothing. You have so many more violent things in the movie business, and this is kind of soft. I'm not naked. It's suggested. I find it really really sexy, actually. It's kind of beautiful. But if it shocks people, I don't know what to do about it. I don't want to upset anybody. I don't want to be seen as just the femme fatale or put into some silly box. I hope that people will have enough imagination. End quote. For me personally, her not saying that she's naked is kind of like when you tear a box like you're you know like they're trying like you're you're opening a box and you've completely ripped it down the side and then you tape it back up and say, No, that box isn't ripped. Because she's kind of like technically kind of right, but let's face it, she's basically naked on that thing. Yeah, you can see the boob for sure. Yeah. In point of fact, here the only the only the only deal is it's not going to be put onto. It's, you're just not going to see it at your local theater. Clearly, you can see it online all you want. So, uh, and I gotta say, simply put, especially after my con- comments on last week's episode. The MPAA made the right decision. I, I just, you know, you don't need blatant nudity out there. I mean, there's there's just no real reason for it. And because of the nature of it being a public sphere where tons of people, kids included, people who don't want to see that, adults who are prudes, whatever, um, people who would just find it distasteful regardless, there's really no reason to have it. So I don't think it's that big of a controversy. I don't think it's that big of a deal but I mean, come on, you know, it, it you can see her, you can see boobage, and that's not that's not what we want to see. Well, it is what we want to see, but it's just not what we want to purport to be seeing. Yeah, it's actually it's a really cool poster. I mean, I like the, the I, cool, I, I like, sexy, noir look or noir. Oh yeah, and I'm 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 surprised that. I mean, I'm sure they're going to make a ton of money on it because you'll be able to get it at like your local Hot Topic or wherever else you want to go or order them online and have them at your house and stuff. So that's totally cool. You know, uh, it's just not going to be displayed on a... Maybe it was an attention grabber, as if this movie wasn't already enough of, a, of an attention grabber just by being called Sin City. <laughs> right. Um, and see, like, I, I, I chose... I thought this would be a pretty good discussion topic because it's created... 
I mean, not like a complete uproar, like over the news and stuff, but a lot of fanboys are getting a little, you know, kind of butthurt by it because I don't think they really understand that. I mean, in some way, the American culture is a little goofy when it comes to sexuality and art. But when I look at this, I don't think of it as... I mean, though I do think it's a really cool poster, like I said, it is still a really cool sexual poster. I mean, I don't want to say it's not necessarily art. You're not looking at an artistic piece that is created for the sake of art. It is created to be sexy and to be a publicity ad for a movie called Absolutely. Sin City, a Dame McIlvoy. Absolutely, yeah. A lot of people have been comparing or saying that, okay, well, how about the Saw movies? Because there are all these Saw movies where they have severed fingers uh, in the poster, like Saw 2, a severed arm. They have various limbs all over the poster. And yet those were able to be put outside of movie theaters. Sure, and I think that, that but I think that we're dealing with two separate issues here. Uh, you, you really more or less are dealing with apples and oranges. They're just trying to put it under the same banner. Uh, whereas apples and oranges are still both fruit, uh, gore and sex are two different things, but they're just put under the banner of decency. The thing is, though, is that what separates gore, what separates gore from sex is the action involved in the image. Now, if you look at a picture of a severed finger or severed arm sure it's gross then that's the point it's supposed to be gross oh if it's going to be gross and gory oh i wonder what the rest of the movie's going to be like but you're not actually seeing the offending action taking place you're seeing the result of the offended action or of the offending action and i think that's the defining line when you're looking at a picture of a naked woman intended to be sexual by its very nature and not suggested as Miss Green uh, suggests, that that is the active desire of sex working. You're seeing a naked chick designed to make you go, yeah. And that is actively taking place, and that is the point of the advert. Whereas the picture of the gore is limited you're not seeing blood and guts all over the place you were seeing a severed finger or a hand or a foot let's say which is gross but you're not actually getting the action coming across in one foul swoop and i think that's the difference yes you're both trying you're, they're both under the umbrella of de- of decency but they're not the same thing and so while i can appreciate where the fanboys are trying to come from more or less i have to respectfully disagree they also have a poster for a girl with a dragon tattoo that they were saying was approved and if you remember one of the first uh, not safe for work pictures has daniel craig with his arm around the lead girl and she's topless and you see her pierced nipple 
and all that stuff. Oh yeah, we still have that link. I checked. When, remember when I told you last week I had listened to a few episodes and stuff? Um, that link is still working and it's still up. Oh yeah, and see, like, I, I think that's a really cool poster, and I would love to have that poster one day. That'll be my uh, my poster behind the door that every guy should have in the in like their office or their abode somewhere. Sure, or that nurse, the nurse three or the nurse one with where she's pouring the blood over her naked body. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, mm-hmm. well, the the one that was approved for the MPAA because obviously where you, you see her nipple, but the one that is approved. Is the same poster, but across the midsection, it says the date for what the release date, 12, 21, 11. And the mm, two in the 21 okay, sure. is going over her nipple, but you see the piercing going through the two, which is still suggestive. And, <laughs> you know, if I was part of the MPA, I would still count that one as suggestive, although I didn't see it at my local movie theater. So, and they yeah. very well could have been like a UK thing release of this poster, but um, yeah, I, I I don't know. It's just like people need to realize that I I don't want my children to. I mean, nudity is one thing. Like whenever you watch like Titanic, like the nude scene where Leo is drawing, you know, Kate Winslet, that is technically art. You know, it's not meant to be. Sec- it was supposed to be, I guess, sexy also, but it, but it's mainly art for art's sake. It's not supposed to be, you know, something all down, all out sexual. That is why the movie wasn't rated R, that it was PG-13, despite there being full-on boobs for a good, you know, five minutes or so. So, and this is obviously for Sin City. Eva Green, gorgeous woman. It is definitely intended to be something sexual, sexy, and not art, in art, and not, and not artistic, as what uh, I would consider artistic for, like, for children to see or for the general public to accept. Indeed. I like it. I like I it agree. a lot. <laughs> well, I guess that takes care of that, then. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> we discuss the shit out of it. That's right. Very succinct discussion in which we agree. All right. That brings us to the end of Discussions with Matt and Tim. Next week, we will be having a three-squared segment regarding Matt and Tim's picks for the worst movies ever made from Warner Brothers. And thus concludes Discussions with Matt and Tim. All right. Well, it was succinct, but I th- I did like it. That was a very enjoyable discussion, so good call, Tim. Thank you there, sir. I guess that is going to leave us with... The Movies! Yes, the movies. Okay, so we have got three movies here for you this week, because, you know, that's typically what we do. We have Harry Dean Stanton, Partly Fiction, The Dirties, and Edge of Tomorrow. Where do you want to start, sir? Let's go with, uh, let's go with some Harry Dean. I've been doing this for 50 fucking years, being photographed, doing movies. After a while, I get tired of it. Everybody talking at me Can't hear a word they're saying The echoes On my mind 
People stopping staring I can't see their faces Only shadows of their eyes I'm going where the sun keeps shining Through the pouring rain Going where the climate suits my clothes He's been in how many, 170 films or something? Uh, over 200. Over 200? Through 50 maybe. I've lost count a long time ago. How would you describe yourself? There's nothing. There's no self. <laughs> how would you like to be remembered? Doesn't matter. He's also one of those actors who knows that his face is a story and he doesn't have to the, the, he just has to be in that thing you know and his face is the story you know you you read all kinds of things and god he's he was so much a part a part of my life that we he when i was still working at the troubadour he would get up and sing with me every now and then he usually he loved to sing Mexican songs, and uh, as far as, well, speak of the devil. These stars are mine. <laughs> My love All right, Harry Dean Stanton, 2012 documentary. Uh, I guess. And it's basically a very... I don't want to say surreal, but it is uh, um, impressionist. Uh, IMDB does say that it is impressionist. I I like that. Uh, And it is basically kind of the story of him and his influences and his influence on Hollywood and uh, especially with like the, the folk singing side of him and everything. Um that he brings to the table and intimate portrait as it were so what it i mean yeah you go first tim i don't i, <laughs> I hate to throw you under the bus because i know i typically will start but no it's cool uh speaking of character actors harry dean stanton well actually i don't think we were really talking about the character actor thing that was more pre-show talk uh but matt and i were talking about character actors before we were recording Harry Dean Stanton is a character actor. You've seen him in movies like Cool Hand Luke. He was uh, the guy with the cat in Alien. Who? What, that's probably one of my my favorite creepy, suspenseful uh, scenes when he's looking for the lost cat in the spaceship, and he's saying the cat's name, and off in the distance you'll hear a meow, and then he walks towards it. It's such an awesome scene. Cool Hand Luke, like I said, he's the folk, the singer with the guitar. Uh, he was in one of his only few lead roles. Uh, his best is Paris, Texas. It's a 1984 film, which is absolutely beautiful. Uh, you can get it on Criterion Collection, Blu-ray, DVD. Highly recommend that to anybody. It's a great movie. So he has been around for a while. He's in his 80s now, and he actually doesn't live too far away from me. And in this documentary, is just is not necessarily about this life because it's kind of hard to make a documentary about a guy who doesn't like to talk about himself very much. And so you you kind of... I, I think they kind of had to 
they were they were in a way forced to make a, a, a very impressionist what they say or, or I, I I like the surreal documentary which is kind of like I don't want to say a day in his life because you really don't spend a day with him but it's how he lives his life currently and his view of his own past again which he doesn't really like to talk about. So they bring in like David Lynch to talk with him, Chris Christopherson to talk with him. And it was just as much entertaining to listen to David Lynch and Chris Christopherson regale story or you know events, talk about all these great stories from the past that involved them and Harry Dean Stanton. And it's a very interesting movie. You get to see him go to one of the, one of his favorite evening hangouts which is Dan Tana's which is right by the Troubadour and uh, which is very cool so you kind of get an idea that he's an older man who has who probably who's felt like he's done his thing you know he's lived his life he's met so many people but there are only a handful of people that are that are worth really talking about which he meant talks about Jet Nicholson and says that Jet Nicholson is one of only few of his close and dearest and most trustworthy of friends. He's very hard on himself. His assistant will contest to that, where he says that he doesn't like to look at a script as much, where he just shows up and performs as himself. You know, a character just plays himself. He kind of alludes to the fact that he doesn't really work on a character as much. But his assistant will say, oh no, he takes a script and he... Uh, just basically calls him out and says that he, he he comes across as a stern motherfucker, but he really isn't. He is a hard worker, and he sits in front of a script and devotes so much time to a character, regardless of the size of the role, which I think is very interesting. And with all of these elements of the movie, that being, you know, uh, surreal, that being more of him... Uh, I, I guess a look into his inner psyche of today than it being a traditional documentary where it starts off where he talks about as his childhood. Well, he doesn't like to talk about his childhood. He doesn't like to talk about his relationship with his uh, mother all that much. Uh, instead, you get like these interesting little insights of of uh, of of the town he is from in Kentucky. But every so often, they'll ask a question about his family and he'll just kind of say, oh, I don't, I don't like talking about it. But while he says that, they have this cool, like, this backing music of him singing this really sad song that you later find out ties into something about his mother or his childhood or his family. It's just really interesting. And to me, at least, the movie is the right length for it to not be boring. Although that the movie does seem to kind of... I don't want to say rehash the same thing over and over again, but when you're limited by what you can do with the movie, you find yourself not really finding anything really new to explore by the end of the documentary. So I give this movie four stars. Four out of five. I think it's good. I, I recommend it to people, especially if uh, you know who... Uh, if you have an idea of who Harry Dean Stanton re- actually is. Okay. Well, that, that's that's fair. I will say this. Um... This movie seems more of a passion project than a true documentary. And I really got... And while I did take away from it a lot of the... 
a lot of the similar things that a, a, a lot of the sim, a lot of similar things that Tim did. I really found that when you get to those scenes with like David Lynch, Sam Shepard, Chris Christopherson, um, where you get that you do get that sense of history from where they came from and everything. You also, especially when it comes to people like Chris Christo- Chris Christopherson and his discussion, like when he refers to Jack Nicholson. It's all alluding to that culture that was fully imbued with people like Jack Nicholson, Chris Christopherson, uh, Harry Dean Stan, all those people uh, with the drugs, with the life that they lived, the, the way Hollywood was, was evolving then. You do get all that, that, that sense of history that's there. But at the same time, it seemed like it was discussion. It was discussion. It was sharing more for their own benefit, and you just kind of got to be there because they were filming it. More than it was a bigger picture expose on the life of Harry Dan's Harry Dean Stanton, or even themselves as they related to it. Which good documentaries will draw you in that way. I, I did, you know, again, I liked his work ethic. I thought that the all the points that Tim has made are valid. And I agree with. Uh, but I take it from the lens and the perspective of a passion project that they were doing more for themselves than they were doing for the viewer. And I think that that consequently always kept me from being fully drawn in and really seeing this as something to like oh wow I really really like this you know that being said I do agree with Tim you should check this out I mean even if you don't know who he is go check out Big Love Uh, he was the bad preacher guy on Big Love uh, for that Uh, if you ever saw the movie Prancer he was in that too Um, for kids who like Christmas movies or what have you you might get a chance to catch it that way so I would definitely say give it a shot, but I didn't enjoy it as much as Tim. And I come in this one on, uh, I come in at three stars on this particular movie. But I did, so I did like it. And there you have it. So where do you want to go from here, sir? The Dutties. We're making a movie. Okay, action. You know what they call a quarter pounder with cheese in France? They don't call it a quarter pounder with cheese? No, you idiot. I should be doing this whole thing with Bane. They call it Royale and cheese. Our movie is about two students in a school who get bullied by this gang called the Dirties, and so they decide to take revenge on them. They snipe them from a long way away. Get dirty with the green bandana. Let's blow his dick off. Guys, there's lots of things, okay? And then there's a scene where the Dirties are, are doing cocaine and we jump in with guns and we're like, Die! Cocksucker, motherfucker! Uh, you guys gotta make some changes. The, what did Muldoon say? You can't make a school shooting movie? If we made a movie where we went with real guns and actually killed only the bad guys. Yeah, that's what we did in our movie. But if we actually did it, just blew them away. Get up! I'm sorry. You know, Larry, we're coming to school with guns to kill you. You're dead. You're dead. You're dead. The blueprints of the school. And I've got them all marked off. Like what each room is for and like who uses each room and when. We're planning a school shooting. You want us to kill anybody for you or? 
Good luck with your shooting. Don't tell anybody. I won't. The Dirties. All right, so, okay, this is a kind of a weird movie. Now, this is something that I thought I was going to really enjoy because when I'm a big Kevin Smith fan. Always have been, always will be. But this kind of shows me shows me that or, or reinforces the idea that everybody, even the people that you like, can stumble <laughs> uh, from time to time. This is a Canadian comedy drama. It's from 2013. And uh, it's about some high school kids who basically are dealing with their bullies, uh, who they call the dirties. And they kind of have these fantasies and they decide to film it and kind of like fictionalize their revenge except one of the friends seems to be taking it way more seriously than the other friend is so it's it's an interesting premise and again i i would expect something like this from someone when you have kevin smith backing something like this enough that they that they're using his name so that it'll get that it'll generate additional viewership and interest but I don't know I, I really felt like I really felt like this was more of a sitcom that was trying too hard to take itself seriously than it was a comedy drama and I so the acting really kind of was not all there for me but they they brought kind of a genuineness to it. Um, I, I really think that people who have been picked on will identify with this film. Even if someone, even if you were, even if you were never really bullied in school, or if you were semi-popular, everybody's been picked on, or or they have that one person who they always feel subpar to. And I think that they do a good job of conveying that aspect of it in the story. But overall, the you know, I, I don't know. It just really didn't do a whole lot for me. But I can't really say it's a bad movie. I I guess I'm going to land on this one being okay. I'm going to come in at two and a half stars on this one. The cinematography is kind of weird. But again, this is low budget. Um, and so I'm, uh, I'm forgiving it for that, being that it's low budget. But it still bothered me by the end of the film. And yeah. It's interesting, but it was just okay. So two and a half stars for me. Yeah, this is another movie where it's written, directed, and acted by the same guy. Uh, the guy who turns out to be the psychopath wrote and directed the movie. And uh, young guys, all of these young, young guys. And Kevin Smith didn't come on board until after he saw, uh, saw it at a film festival. And he picked, picked the movie up pretty much. Uh, at least I believe that's how it went. I know he he wasn't directly involved with the making of the film. It's I, I I gotta say I mean for the best the best criticism I will give is that it is it is entertaining. Therefore, but in saying that, I don't think the movie should have been entertaining due to the content. Uh, the actors are really good. The performances are definitely a lot better than what you would expect. Uh, the uh, professionalism of the filmmaking is, I mean, it's just a lot better than many big studio 
found footage movies I have seen uh, recently or even in the past. It was definitely well made. And this guy, I mean, you, I mean, the the character he plays is a movie nerd, and you can tell that this guy is a movie geek because he is actually really good at you know making movies. However, the movie is about school shootings and the buildup of a guy who is ultimately who is ultimately a psychopath who ends up killing, you know, going to school and shooting the very people that bully him who are known as the dirties. But the thing with me, but I think the the, the issue I have is not, I mean, is with the main guy who turns out to be the psychopath. The, the the other friend, I think he played it. I, I I had no problem with his portrayal, his character. He was kind of thrown into things. By the end of it, he wasn't directly, you know, he he wasn't involved with the shooting, and he had no idea that the guy was wanting to kill people. But the psychopath, I felt he played the movie too. Uh, played the movie, played the character a little too over the top. He was trying to be funny. It was like you're watching a Seth Rogen movie, and all of a sudden, he Seth Rogen turn, turns out to be a psychopath and wants to actually kill people by the end of the movie. It doesn't work. I, I don't really think people like that are psychopaths, especially those that take part in school shootings. I mean, I don't know for sure, but at least with the interviews and the uh, shooter introspectives that we watch, of uh, especially the shootings that have happened the last couple years... They don't seem to be over-the-top, goofy film buffs. You know, the Seth Rogen type of characters. Zach Galifianakis type of characters. That this guy is, you know, portrays himself to be in the movie. I wanted somebody to be more sincere, less funny and over-the-top. There still could have been the dynamic and the differentiation between the two lead characters. The guy who is a film geek, but loves this girl that doesn't, that has no idea, that's completely oblivious to the overall plan. But then you can have the film geek, the guy, the the goofy guy who turns out to be a psychopath, but isn't like trying to be funny and throwing out all these goofy one-liners, and who is a super smart guy, but he doesn't come across as too smart for his own good. And I think that's really what he needed. You know, it's it's there's a scene in the movie where he has a dictionary and he looks up the definition of psychopath and he's like he starts reading the definition. And to me, it felt like that was the extent of his characterization for the character. It's like he picked up a book and saw, okay, to be a psychopath, here's a definition, here's another definition, here's another definition, and he's playing those definitions. Instead of creating a character that falls into that definition, he's just playing that definition. I don't know if that makes any sense or not. It's kind of like what we were talking about, uh, 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 one of the movies from last week, where I was saying, oh, it was The Frozen Ground, where Vanessa Hudgensen, she's not playing a character who is sad. She was playing sad. She was playing scared. She was playing distraught. Instead of becoming sad, becoming scared, becoming distraught. That's what I felt with this, and that's what I mean by there needs to be that sincerity with the character, and unless, of course, he was playing himself, which very well could have been it. But then again, 
why make a... I mean, uh, then the movie then kind of just falls apart if you start thinking, like, oh, he was just playing himself and, that, you know, on top of a movie that's just about killing, getting back at bullies, and therefore we're going to throw on a sincerity to the overall movie. I don't know. I think I'm just rambling. Uh, one other thing I want to mention about the movie real quick is that it's a found footage movie, but... There, there really wasn't a point for it to be a found footage movie because on top of it you have another person holding the camera that you hardly ever see I mean you see him like reaching for popcorn but that's it you, the person never speaks you never see the face it just doesn't make sense like you have a person that is the the camera operator for the movie that they're making but he also turns out to be the camera occupant uh, the camera occupant the camera operator of the shooting for the most part you know it just didn't make too much sense for me i i go with 3.5 out of 5 right on okay well very cool well that's not yeah I mean, that's not too much of a disparage we're, we're we're staying consistent anyway yes that's true <laughs> i had a three and you had a four i had a two and a half you had a three and a half seems like a one star <laughs> difference on that all right so that's gonna leave us with edge of tomorrow um, the, of course, 2014 military science fiction film, which is basically Groundhog Day meets uh, Starship Troopers. And stars Tom Cruise as a... <laughs> uh, basically just a complete sniveling coward of an officer who turns into the guy that saves the world, courtesy of a woman a soldier who is just like this amazing badass. The movie, I thought this movie was great. I, I made my expectations were low. I was surprised it was doing so well ratings wise and everything, with, with reviews and everything, and, and how and all that good stuff. So, I, I was like, okay, well, I guess you know we need to check it out at some point. And so we went ahead and watched it. And I was really surprised by this movie. I could not believe that it was as good as it was. I was thoroughly enjoying myself. They seemed very very aware of the pacing and it was always prescient in their minds that they, you know oh my gosh we you know we've got to keep moving we've got to keep moving and so they would do things that would take time out of the loop that's happening but only enough time to develop a character to give you a sense of growth in either Tom Cruise's character or Emily Blunt's character you see that kind of, and of course they have good plays on humor and everything numerous deaths some of which are funny <laughs> and yet they constantly allow for you to have a reason to keep watching this day repeat and you see things happen over and over and they also were very smart about allowing time to have passed that you didn't need to see so that it gives more time for things to grow. Um, they did a very good job of not creating any paradoxes or anything like that. They um, had a story that made a lot of sense so that that a story that made a lot of sense so that you would be able to understand how someone could be trapped in a time loop and someone else would know but and other people could be trapped in time loops in different ways and how they explain it off the only 
Uh, and, and again, they keep it very simple. They don't go into any inordinate amount of technology. They also keep the time travel very simple and, and just a simple loop that they don't overdo. So all of these things are good. And you're just I'm just enjoying this movie. I'm having a blast. My brother-in-law came with me. He's really enjoying the movie as well. And then we get to the last about 20 minutes. It's time to... Uh, you know, go and defeat the bad guy once and for all and get rid of this alien species by golly. And the problem is, is that the way they go about doing it, they have to introduce a group of characters in a new way that you've seen throughout the movie. But then all of these things that happen that allow for the movie to resolve itself the, the way that these characters behave is completely the antithesis of how they have behaved all the way, the entire film. And where you got to see growth and a reason for Tom Cruise's character and Emily Blunt's characters to behave the way that they do, they never have that kind of exposition throughout the entire film for everything that happens in the finale. So when you see this kind of stuff happening, you're like, well, but why? That why? That, that that it's just not playing out right. But they needed it to just kind of put the ending together and it feels thrown together. Also, when you're this is the finale, this is when everything needs to really be important and you also kind of get the feeling that the special effects are starting to falter. I'm not sure what's going on. This is I'm, I'm noticing this a lot in the movies lately. As, again, with X-Men Days of Future Past as, as another recent example. The, the special effects are really good. And then like in the very last part of the movie, it's kind of like, oh, we spent all the money. Shit, what are we going to do? You know, Quick, throw some stick figures up there. It'll work. It's not that bad. But, I mean, you really do see a difference in the quality of the special effects from the beginning of the movie as opposed to the very end. And that, I, I just don't... I'm not sure what's going on there. And then you get to the actual end of the movie. The full physical ending of the movie. And I was so pissed off because it had a very gripping ending in the works. And I was like, cool, this is awesome. And it's not the ending that you would expect, but it's the ending that you feel is necessary. And so you're like, alright, cool. I'm going to go with that. And then... They just go and they just completely ruin it. Uh, I, I'm not going to give it away, but they... J I mean, it's totally obvious what they were trying to do. They're just trying to make everybody happy. And by doing so, they ripped out the soul of the movie <laughs> for the sake of the end. And I was like, wow, this is a five-star movie. I can't believe this is going to be a five-star movie for me. And then we get to the last 20 minutes. And then that character exposition that didn't happen, that needed to happen resulting in these people i'm like eh, i can live with that quarter star pulled off for that then the actual ending occurs and bam half star just total half star just ripped off of that even still this movie is totally worth watching and i did really like it the ending does not ruin the movie but it totally destroys the soul of the movie even still the body the shell that is the remainder of the movie is still worth watching, even without its soul. <laughs> so I would definitely say check it out. It's really good. 4.25 stars for me for Edge of Tomorrow. Take it away, Tim. 
I would have to agree completely. Minus the CGI didn't really bother me all that much. Uh, this is a 4.25 star movie for me as well, actually. The only thing other uh, that that just kind of annoyed me a little bit is they had a name, his prison name, Tom Cruise's prison name is Cage. And that was a little bit 80s throwback, a little bit too 80s throwback for me. And it was just kind of annoying how it's like, they had these very dramatic scenes and Emily Blunt is like, Cage, what should, what should we do, Cage? What's what's next, Cage? And I, I don't know, that just didn't sit too well for me every other time. I didn't take anything away from the movie. But it's like, do they they really had a they really had to go like with, with Snake Plimpkin, you know, they had to they had to use Cage. We haven't had enough action sci-fi movies where the lead character's name was Cage. So, yeah, 4.25. I I pretty much agree with everything else you said with the ending. Though the movie is still crazy enjoyable. Bill Paxson's in it. Bill Paxson's entertaining. So, yeah. <laughs> well, okay. That's <laughs> definitely... <laughs> I think that's the world record for the shortest review by Tim. <laughs> Holy crap. <laughs> You're welcome. Yeah, no, no, I just... Yeah, and as a little trivia note, I, uh, according to Wikipedia for the production side of it. This was the first time that Bill Paxton and Tom Cruise had worked together and they both have over 30 years of experience in the movies and they've never crossed paths before now. Oh. Bar trivia continues. Yes. Yes, there you go. Oh, and the guy who keeps calling Cage Maggot is uh, Tony Todd. Candyman. For those who might know who that is. Anyway... So, all right, so that's the end of the movies there. The movies for next week, uh, I, I, we're, we're going to have to sequel it up this time, folks. It's just uh, they're getting they're, they're, they're strong performers at the box office, and they're actually getting amazing reviews. And so we're going to have to sequel it up now, folks. Next week at the movies, 22 Jump Street and How to Train Your Dragon 2. But we're also throwing a Netflix movie in there, Battle Royale. So, yeah which I am super excited about. I totally forgot that this movie was out there, and Tim reminded me of it. And I was like, oh my god, yes! We must watch this movie! And he's like, well, that was easy. <laughs> and there we go. All right, so that's it. And then I guess it now is time for the spiel, is it not, sir? Spiel on! All right, well, as always, the music you've been listening to, with, of course, exception to the discussions with Matt and Tim music, is, of course, brought to us by our music partners, Cries of Solace. You can check them out at ReverbNation.com and Facebook.com, both slash Cries of Solace. The discussions with Matt and Tim music comes to us from MuseOpen.org. Let's see. We, of course, are still the SLS cast. You can check us out at slscast.com. You can send us an email too. Here it is, folks. Remember, the show, all one word, the show at slscast.com. You can follow us on Twitter at the SLScast. You can always go to Facebook and search us there. You can also subscribe to us on iTunes and or favorite us on Stitcher Radio. So until next week, this is Matt saying that thanks to Glenn Close, I get to say this. Celebrity is death. Celebrity. That's the worst thing that can happen to an actor. Take care, guys. See you next week.
Thanks again for listening to the SLS Cast with your hosts, Matt and Tim. Remember that you can find us at slscast.com, at the SLS Cast for Twitter, also on Facebook, and you can always subscribe on iTunes. Thanks again for listening.